Hello, and welcome to A Chat with Uma with me, your host, Uma R. Chatterjee. On this podcast, I bring together all of my roles as a neuroscientist, researcher, board-certified mental health peer specialist, mental health advocate, community builder, and a survivor with lived experience to bring you honest and unfiltered conversations exploring our true human experiences in their fullest form. Every week, I'm bringing you conversations bridging the gap on all things neuroscience, psychology, mental health, lived experience, advocacy, psychedelics, and more. This is a space for raw, unfiltered truth to truly explore ourselves for who we are and how we are. I cannot wait to connect with you, answer all of your questions, and co-create this with you. Welcome to A Chat with Uma. Hello, my beautiful friends, and welcome back to another episode of A Chat with Uma. I am so giddy and excited to introduce today's episode guest, who is Dr. Elizabeth Berry, an amazing neuroscientist, science communicator, digital creator, artist, and just an all-around amazing human being. Dr. Elizabeth Berry just received her PhD, yay, in cell biology with a specialization in neuroscience from New York Medical College this past May. For her dissertation project, she focused on opioid addiction and the impact it has on specific neurons in the brain called orexin neurons. She is currently working as a postdoctoral fellow in Dr. Leonard's lab, the lab she did her dissertation in, furthering the research she pursued during her PhD. In the future, she hopes to work in an industry position as a scientist on neurodegenerative diseases. And let me tell you, this bio does not even begin to encapsulate all of her magic and all of the amazing ways she shows up in the world, of course, many of which we get into in the episode. But I am just so excited to have Dr. Barry on the show because honestly, she's exactly the kind of person like that inspired me starting the show and creating the space to really just get far deeper into a person beyond the amazing ways they show up in the world, all of their amazing work. I mean, her research is so fascinating. We're going to hear all about it. But the way in which she shows up in her research, in her art, in her science communication, in just the human she is, she is just so curious, so open, so creative. And she really unabashedly shares that about herself in a world that really at this point isn't super conducive of people, especially scientists, being their full selves in that space. And she really has broken so many barriers, has built and carved her own path for expressing herself. And she has gotten so far doing exactly that, being exactly who she is. So I just loved getting to really dig into her background, her past, all of the different parts of her life that inform the way she navigated her research, her interests, the way she lives her life now, just really getting into so many of the things she wished she knew going into a PhD. And this is, of course, such an amazing episode for anyone going into a PhD or anyone in biomedical sciences or research such as me, of course. But I think anyone listening to this can really, of course, not just learn from her amazing research, but really take so much wisdom about work-life balance and about tuning into ourselves as people and she just does an amazing job of that in a field and in a space that I can firsthand attest to like is the least conducive of all of that so she's just an amazing example and just such a beautiful human being and you definitely will hear that in this episode so without further ado let's get into the amazing episode ahead this conversation with Dr. Elizabeth Berry. (laughs) 
I'm so happy to have you here, Dr. Liz. You are <laughs> someone who just brings me so much inspiration and joy and hope in being a scientist. And before we get into everything and just getting to know you in all the ways, I just want to say that you have been so kind to me over the last, I feel, I don't even know how long, at least a year <laughs> in just really welcoming me as my full self, as someone who is kind of far earlier on the journey to being a scientist and being a researcher. I've just looked up to you in the way that you, of course, are a scientist and a science communicator, but you're also just someone who really normalizes the human experience and really, really loves what she does and just like really expands the definition of what a, like being a human who does research versus just identifying as a researcher. And you've just you know, in the ways that I've kind of broken a lot of the rules, I guess, of traditional academia and what I disclose on the internet, you've just been endlessly supportive of me and have just been so generous and so kind. I think that speaks so much to you as a human. So first of all, that's just a full ramble to say thank you for who you are in this world. And it's such a joy to know you and to know that you exist and you make me feel like I belong. So thank you so much, first and foremost. And... Well, I have to say, as soon as we met at SFN this past year, it was like immediate, like, I'm going to get along with you, you know? <laughs> you could immediately tell. Ugh. Immediately just broke the barriers down and we could just like chat like we were friends already. It was really cool. That's exactly how I felt too. And also for anyone listening, the way that I even met Liz at SFN was that Liz was like, hey, on Instagram, like, which we'll get into her platform, but like on Instagram, she was like, who all is there and presenting their poster? I want to meet you and be friends. And I was like, well, I guess I'll tell her that I'm sharing a poster, but like, there's no expectation of like her coming to see my poster of all people. And then like, she was the first person that showed up and then actually like cared about my research. And like, it was just one of those examples of her being such a kind human, not just on the internet, but in real life. So uh, I was so, so happy to meet you there. And I can't wait to see you again there this year. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Because that was your first SFN experience, right? Yep. Yeah. Yep, it was. And, and, like, those are scary. Like when I was there for the first time, I was like, oh boy. So I, was, I like to make people, you know, feel comfortable I like doing that because I was definitely a fish out of water on my first year. Yeah, and not just, I mean, SFN's one example of really just academia and research being like, oh, what the fuck is going on all the time? Yeah. And just like, you just, I don't know, you just make it so normalized. You almost make it seem like anyone can do it, which I believe they can. So you're just, you're amazing. You're so special. And with that, my first question before we get into all the amazing things you do and the ways you show up in the world, because oftentimes we identify ourselves when we're asked who we are as like what we do, what our job is, what our degree is, whatever, whatever. But who is the person behind all that you do and the ways you show up in the world? How would you describe yourself? So innately, I think I am just a really creative person and I get bored really easily. Like, it's kind of funny. Like, I I have to be doing something. I like being stimulated. I like coming up with new ideas for if I'm drawing something or if it's like a new experiment. If I'm in the shower, I'll figure something out that I should have, you know, like an experiment like, oh, I should analyze it this way. You know, I just I'm really spontaneous and creative. And that's innately who I am. And that's basically the jumpstart platform for everything I do. 
Oh, I know. I I love that you had an immediate answer to that question because, some, you know, a lot of times people don't because they don't think about that. And I think the fact that you had such an immediate response and you know exactly what to say it just goes to show how much you've reflected on the way you show up in the world and who you are and how that those traits and how those interests feed into the like the different things you do, which are so many things. So thank you so much for sharing that and your creativity, your spontaneity. And I would add your generosity, which you're not going to say about yourself, <laughs> but I'm going to say that about you just really, really <laughs> shapes you and the beautiful human you are. And so I'll start with the parts of your story that lend itself to kind of maybe the biggest thing that at least you're known for in the world, maybe not the biggest thing about you, but being a researcher, being a neurobiologist, like what parts of your life growing up led you to developing that interest, you know, fostering that curiosity and then leading you to that form of a vocation? Yeah. So I kind of always really loved nature. For, I loved watching all of the Nova shows, the nature shows on like PBS growing up on TV. And I would collect those like pages that they sent you in the mail. I had this like giant binder of them. And I would spend a lot of time in the garden with my parents, specifically with earthworms. I would collect them and I would put them in buckets because I was like, they're dirty. They need a bath, which ended up killing them. I didn't know what was going on back then, obviously, but like, so I was just really curious about everything growing up. And I remember in, I think it was like first grade, they had us make a role model out of like plastic bottles. We had to like dress it up and like, you know, make it look like the person that's our role model. And I chose Jane Goodall right off the bat in first grade. So like, I've always like aspired to be a researcher. Um basically from watching all the shows and everything that I did when I was growing up and it's kind of transformed into what type of researcher I've wanted to be throughout my life like I thought I wanted to be an environmentalist obviously growing up because that's all that I was exposed to but um what really like tipped me off was I took an ecology class in undergrad I hated that it was terrible <laughs> I just, it was like all this math and like population dynamics and like counting how many offspring were there were and I was like nah I'm not I'm not I'm not interested in that at all um and then I like you know piloted into more plant science and eventually neuroscience but I can get into more of that later on if you want oh we're gonna get into it I want to know all the things <laughs> and so so you knew kind of growing up and in your, I'm assuming, late adolescence, early adulthood that you want to be a researcher. And then in college, you realized that it wasn't going to be environmental science. Yeah. How did you, like, what did you do with that? Were you lost and confused about what to do? And then you eventually came into biology and neuroscience or was it an immediate transition? Like, how did that happen? Yeah, I was a little unsure what the hell I was going to do after I was like, wow, I hate ecology. Um, but it was lucky because at the same time I was taking this plant science course and I was obsessed with this course. Like I, I was like, yeah, I want to know what the like plant sections look like. I want to know what those cell types are. Cause there was a lab that went with it and I could look at like slides and we could draw and identify like cell types of plants. Obviously that piqued my interest, the drawing. Um, so there was just like this whole connection. And then the professor that taught that plant science course. I just like went up to her one day. I think it was like maybe after the first exam. And I was like, do you do research? And she was like, yeah, I do. And I was like, 
that's really cool. Can I uh, join your lab? And we had like one meeting and she let me in her lab. And that's basically, I was sophomore year undergrad and I was in her year, in her like lab for three years in undergrad working on plant science. And that was my first lab experience where I realized that, yeah, I really do like being in the laboratory. Did you know going into college that you could join a lab or like how are there scientists in your family? Like, how did you even know to ask that question? I kind of, I don't really have a filter in some degree. I kind of ask a lot of questions. <laughs> kind of annoying, I guess. I just like keep going. So maybe that's probably why. But I do have a family member that worked in J&J, Johnson & Johnson. And I have a close family friend that worked in Pfizer. So like I was aware of like the scientific field, but I had no academic researchers or, you know, academic scientists or lab scientists like in the family or close to me, really. Well, I would say, number one, if I'm going to define myself, the first word that comes to mind is unfiltered. I have no filter, too, so I can see why we get along so well. Two, what you perceive as annoying, I think, is one of your greatest strengths as a researcher and a human of being curious and wanting to learn more and evolve beyond what we've been told, which shows up in a lot of ways in your life. And three, that's really interesting that you had some level of exposure to research, but not academic research, because that's its own almost black box of how to navigate into academia and degrees and this, that, and the other thing. So, So with that, so you were in this lab and then I'm assuming you graduated. And then how on earth did you find yourself in a neuroscience doctoral degree? <laughs> with with zero neuroscience experience. <laughs> yeah, so I, w- I did plant science, molecular biology, plant science, and histology in undergrad. And then um, at the end of my undergrad degree, my Nana passed away from Parkinson's disease. It was my the summer in between my junior and senior year. And this kind of like, you know, threw me off. I was just like, I was living with her with that disease, you know, but like the death kind of triggered me. And I really just like, was like, why? I was like, I need to know why. And of course my like eccentric brain was like, question, 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 kept thinking, looking at papers online. I was like, I want to do this. I know I like the lab. I can do it in a different topic than plant science. And I also knew that I wanted to do something more like medically related. And those two things just kind of came together um but by the time my brain figured this out of course um i it was like towards the end of undergrad i was graduating and obviously the phd deadlines had passed so i was like well (laughs) what do i do now um i instead applied for master's programs and i was accepted into master's programs and chose my school that i did my phd in to do a master's program in the microbiology department Because that's another story. I was actually like really heavily microbiology immunology major in undergrad, not plant. I was all I was all over the place, basically. But um, so I did a six months in the master's program, immediately applied for the Ph.D. program in my school and was accepted and started the Ph.D. the next year. My gosh, that is such (laughs) a testament to this idea were sold that like people who are the most successful have to follow a linear path and they need to know what they're doing and like they need to just like follow this very specific framework of you apply it this time and do it this way and you were just like oh I missed that deadline I'm gonna figure out another way to get in and like you really truly just forge your path forward and I think that is the biggest marker of resilience and success because my gosh like I actually didn't know all of those parts of how you got to your PhD so that is wild and so 
just like a clarification question like when you started your master's were you a part of a lab at all and like was that the same lab that you then did your phd in or like how how did that come about oh my gosh (laughs) that's a whole nother i've done way too many types of research i have to say so while i was in my master's program for like the year that i was in the program um i joined a lab that worked on neovascularization so like development of new blood vessels in the pharmacology department at my school which of course i've never had any experience with before the only experience i came into with that was i knew how to sell culture and i knew how to do a lot of molecular biology techniques and i was accepted into that lab i was luckily paid for that year which was awesome and uh, no that was not the lab i did my phd in obviously because that's not neuroscience (laughs) but you knew going in to the master's to then do your PhD that you wanted to do neuroscience? Yeah, I did. Wow. But there were no labs that were open to pay, basically, during that time. So I chose a paid position. That's so smart. And also to to your point of you said you've done too many types of research. I mean, the way I see it is you've learned you've learned how to learn. Obviously, a PhD does that. But even prior, like you learned how to learn techniques and different fields and like the amount of interdisciplinary and multidisciplinary work you did. I know for a fact, like fed into the way you navigated your research and the creativity and the expansion that you have in the way you navigate research. So, wow, I love hearing all this. And so. (laughs) <laughs> okay, getting into the actual PhD, the time of doom that I'm about to enter that you just exited. My gosh. So did you know what lab you wanted to join for the PhD when you could eventually like officially get paid that way? So the way that my school works is you have rotations that you do. So I'm in an inter I was in an interdisciplinary I can't even say it. it's called IPP. Interdisciplinary program sorry my brain is just not functioning um but basically you choose three labs to rotate in and you choose one of those labs to actually do your phd in now did liz do three rotations no she did four because i just break every single rule possible (laughs) at this point um so i chose my first lab in my rotation which was a parkinson's research lab Obviously, I was like, I'm going, I need to see what up, what's up with that. Um, I was going to choose that lab as my dissertation lab, but I'll get to that in a second. Um, my second rotation was in an epilepsy lab, and I just physically couldn't handle watching seizures. So I, I knew that was a no. Um, that really bothered me. So I just knew I couldn't do that. Um, and then the third lab I rotated in was my... Um, lab I chose for my PhD. And then the fourth one that I rotated in was <laughs> because I was like, oh, I'm really not sure because I really wanted to choose the first one I did, but they said no because of like funding issues. So I did a fourth one. And that was like on um, stem cells research, like in uh, induced pluripotent stem cells, pushing them into neurons kind of deal. So I did four and I ended up choosing my third rotation, which was my PhD research. I'm about to start rotations too, and I'm like, they say that you have three, but you can do more if you need to, although like they kind of don't want you to. I'm like, I'm a rule breaker. I'm already, I'm going to do that. (laughs) (laughs) We're signing our life to them. They should probably help us out. So no, you Yeah, I wanted to make sure. Yeah, and I do too. You really got to make sure. Yep, because that's a marriage. (laughs) That is a marriage that eventually ends in 
you know, divorce, divorce or whatever you want to call it. But <laughs> it is a marriage and it's long. So what was the general like topic or technique or like what that you that ended up being why you chose the lab in the first place, the third lab that you rotated in? So the like decision was based on um, the lab was really heavy in neurohistology. And I knew I had a really good background in that already. So I could bring that to the table and kind of jump into that side of the lab while learning the crazy technique called electrophysiology. <laughs> because I thought that was really cool that you could record from live neurons. But boy, does that take a long time to learn. So while doing histology and being proficient in it, I was baby stepping my way into the electrophysiology land to learn actually to be a proficient whole cell patch clamper. But I got there because I graduated, so we're good. But it was basically electrophysiology and histology were my main um, like techniques throughout my PhD. And what generally does your lab study like on a high level like what subject what's like what's its interest so the his that like historically the lab that i joined studies sleep and so you know the different regions in the brain that control wake regulation sleep regulation and primarily focuses on the erexin system or hypocretin system in the lateral hypothalamic region and they we typically focused on the projections of those neurons to the serotonergic neurons in the dorsal raphe and the involvement of narcolepsy and cataplexy. So like narcolepsy, you're really sleepy all the time. These patients, they don't have orexin peptide or very little orexin peptide in their brain because those neurons actually degenerate. And um, cataplexy, which is the loss of muscle tone in, in response to like a positive stimuli. And so we have a lot of narcoleptic mouse models in the lab. But I obviously didn't focus on sleep for my project. I focused on addiction. And this was a completely new component that I brought to the lab. And my project, it came out of nowhere, of course, at an SFN meeting. So I was at a poster that I was presenting with my lab mate. And um, who are now our colleagues, they came up to the poster and they started talking to us. And they were like, oh, we have this really cool finding in the erexin system where the erexin neurons, they increase in number and decrease in size following morphine addiction. And they're like, we need some electrophysiologists to figure out what the hell's going on, basically, because they don't have electrophysiology in their lab. And so that became my project, figure out what the hell's going on after morphine addiction in these erexin neurons. So when you joined your lab, did you have an overt interest in any of those topics or the techniques? Like what, like, did you, yeah, like what, what lit you up to be able to like get through that PhD? Because my God, is that a process? (laughs) So I guess I'm lucky in that I am very flexible. Like a lot of different things interest me, except for diabetes. That's probably one of the only things I really don't, I'm not, anything involved with like insulin, I'm like, tune out for some reason. My brain just doesn't care. But um, so but if it was like the brain, I was like, okay, like I'm, I'm excited. I want to learn about how neurons fire. I want to learn about their action potentials. I want to learn about like, what, what, why are they different? Okay, they may stain different with different proteins, but why are they electrically different? Like, that's still kind of like unexplored and not many people actually know about that. 
So being able to learn about that and then eventually, you know, talk about that with the general public is something that excited me. Mm. Yeah. And that really, really shows. And I think this is going to lead me to my next question, but the way you communicate your science specifically in such an accessible and exciting way, like your enthusiasm really shows and your awe and your interest in neuroscience and specifically like neural cells is just, it really, really shines through. And so that leads me to my question of what was the transition like for you of being, you know, interested in neuroscience, like, or finding your interest in neuroscience in your undergrad, but not having that undergrad uh, experience and degree to then like being thrown into this scenario of full-blown neurobiology, PhD, Ooh. neurons, like all of that in a non-traditional way. Oh yeah. Yeah. I had zero knowledge about the when I came into, I, I literally like, I, I'm not even joking. I was microbiology, immunology. I was like, all right, toxoplasma, gondii, streptococcus, pneumonia, it smells like berries on the plate. You know, like I was like full microbiology plant science. And then I came in here and I was like looking at brain atlases and I was like, all right, I need to uh, figure out how to get this to be understandable to me. Um, so what did I do? I took microscope slides and I sat on a microscope for a really long time with an atlas and basically tried to be like oh where is this and then i would find it on the atlas and go back to the slide and go back to the atlas because i was comfortable with histology so that's how i kind of brought myself in taking the uh, medical neuroscience course that is required by all the students here in neuroscience like you have to take it with the medical students it's like their course was uh quite a ride i have to say it was really difficult but I made it through, but it was a, quite a struggle because I had no idea. The way you talked about just like the creative, to me at least, being familiar enough with like how people are taught or learn neuroscience, like for you taking that creative way of like, hey, I am, you know, comfortable with histology. I think what I'm also seeing about you is that you're, you know, very visual, you're very creative. So like, how can you lean into those strengths to teach yourself in a way that like you probably would have been not been taught in a class like it's usually just diagrams yeah. and figures and you know memorizing this that and the other thing like that is so inspiring to me as someone who definitely I learned differently and I have a lot to catch up on too I didn't do my undergrad in neuroscience so I really really love that and with that transition like did you ever doubt that you were able to learn it or you were able to catch up and did that at all color your experience in your PhD so that question kind of stems on like your point that everyone learns like a little differently, but I've always felt that I have learned and I learn very differently than other people. And so this like brings me back to like, you know, high school stuff, right? I don't do as well on standardized tests. I suck at standardized tests. Like I'm really not good at them. And like, so like throughout college and undergrad and like even the PhD program here, taking standardized tests terrible like i did i did the best that i could i mean i excelled in biochem really well because that topic was just like in my brain for some reason but um you really have to like think outside the box and really pull at your strengths because like i really did think that i was kind of unable to learn as well but then i just realized that i was just needing to pull on drawing or you know physically touching things like walking around, I would walk on a treadmill while going over flashcards because I just needed to like be actively moving, kind of stuff like that. So by the time I took medical neuroscience, 
I kind of had a lot of the tools I needed to drive myself through that, even though it was quite hard still. What kept you motivated enough to figure out how to learn rather than kind of falling into hopelessness about the fact that like objectively, it's standardized ways that you weren't falling into the norm? Yeah. Um, so I guess what like turned me on to that was like, okay, if I took a multiple choice test, Liz was an average Joe, right? <laughs> Didn't do that good. Um, but if I took an open-ended test, I got like 100. Like if I was given the liberty to not choose questions or choose like, you know, answers that were given to me, I could answer it fine. But it was like, as soon as I give was given these restricted thought pieces, I just couldn't, my brain was like, well, I came up with something over there. They're only giving me these. So which one do I pick out of the options provided? So the fact that I was successful in a type of format, I was like, there's something that I'm still good at. So I need to figure out how to use that and ignore all this other crap that's trying to put me in a bubble because I'm not a bubble person. Broke it a while ago. (laughs) Do you... This is kind of like a tangential question, but I'm so curious because I've you posted about your mom at least before, like in terms of, you know, everything she does, like in the outside world, like gardening, growing beautiful flowers and other things. <laughs> and then like you just and you also talked about growing up, like you were just very outside. You were very in touch with nature. Like, did you I guess I can't help but wonder, like, what was your relationship with your family like to like foster that kind of resilience and belief in yourself because I mean from such a young age you've been doing it I guess so um I spent a lot of time with my family outside because we garden a lot so we grow like tons of vegetables the flower stuff really only took off after my mom retired and now she has her own little local flower business where she sells locally to flower shops so um that was like a more recent thing but we've always like grown vegetables And so I was always out in the garden playing with my parents. And I think just being outside and like, you know, having the freedom to think and not be on the TV and, you know, have like unstructured playtime really allows you to, you know, generate your own likes and dislikes and your own creative paths. And I spent a lot of time outside. I spent a lot of time drawing when I was little. And playing with a lot of like Playmobil or animal models and stuff like that. But I had a lot of like free creative playtime. And I think that's what really helped me. And my parents, they always told me to not restrict myself, to not, you know, pin myself as like, I don't like math. I don't like history. I really don't like history still. I'm, I'm going to keep with that. But um, I uh, kind of kept myself open, which is, I think, how I allowed myself to get into so many different types of research. So I was like, sure, I'll try it. Why not? And that really just lends itself to the way I feel like you, what the way you've shared how you've kept yourself intact as much as one can, I guess, through a PhD, and like as much as you had to just like be there all day, every day, which is a whole other topic to get into. Like you still like came back to who you are and the parts of yourself to foster that creativity, that presence, like being outside, you're outside so much. You inspire me to go outside more and to move more <laughs> and to create. And, you know, I am not an artist, but in other ways. So I, I love that you shared that. And like, I can see in a meta sense how that bloomed into parts of who you are today so coming back to uh the nitty-gritty of the research in that world like (laughs) 
So you're relatively new to neurobiology. You have passion for it. You have a very personal reason to go into that field. You're in this PhD. It's so intensive. Like how, you know, you talked about your project developing, like, well, I guess, first of all, can you on a high level, like just share, I know this is a hard question and in getting into like the biology and I promise I'm not trying to make you do your dissertation, but like just no for people who want to know about like you and your yeah. work, like what, what was your PhD like research? What was the project ultimately? Yeah, sure. So um, it will be published soon. The papers are almost done. Um, two papers. Yay. <laughs> um, so basically, as I was saying before, this project happened at an SFN meeting. And it was based on the finding that if you give, well, this was found in humans first and heroin addicts. Um, but it was also replicated in a mouse model. If you give mice morphine for two weeks, once daily for two weeks, the orexin neurons in their lateral hypothalamic area, they become smaller in size and there's more of them. But the part that was really interesting to us as an electrophysiologist standpoint is the small size. Because if you change the size of a neuron, that changes their surface area. And if you change the surface area of a neuron, that changes their excitability potentially. And if you have a smaller neuron, you could have a more excitable neuron. So we actually thought that after two weeks of chronic morphine exposure, you might have more excitable orexin neurons. And so that's what we thought going in. But what did I find out? <laughs> so it turns out there are two types of orexin neurons. And the only way you can currently figure out the two types is if you use whole cell patch clamp recording, electrical recordings. One of them is called a D-type. It's a depolarizing type. It fires faster after you give it a negative pulse of uh, current. And then the other one's a H-type. It's a hyperpolarizing type. If you give it a negative pulse of current, it has a delay to re returning to firing potentials. So there's two types, D and H-type. And then so what I did was I addicted mice for two weeks. I recorded the electrical potentials from these DNH type neurons from control and morphine treated mice. And I found that only one type of the orexin neurons was impacted by morphine exposure. And it was turned out to be the H type, but they weren't more excitable. They were actually less excitable, which was wholly confusing to us because that didn't match what we thought would happen with a smaller somatic size. So it turns out the result from the first part of my PhD, I'm not going to go into the second paper thing, but it's we have a less excitable orexin neuron. So the orexin system might be actually less excitable in patients who are heroin addicts, for example, or opioid addicts, which is a new take on the field. And you have to think about it differently when you're giving patients like therapeutic drugs then because the system is working differently in our eyes than we originally thought. My gosh, that is just such a classic example of what really lights me up of like I guess there's one version of like a, oh you go into a project you think you know what's going to happen and then it happens and you've confirmed it versus like totally discovering something completely new that you didn't expect and like it can be scary and like what is this going to happen like what is going to happen to my degree what's going to happen to my you know findings except like you're totally well, changing yeah. the field <laughs> and my gosh the way you shared it it just sounded like you were so almost like comfortable with that pivot and that uncertainty, which I think is such a marker and something like I aspire to as a as an up and coming <laughs> researcher as well. So thank you so much for sharing that. And going to 
the ephas part of all of this because you are queen ephas in my mind <laughs> like that you touched on it briefly earlier but for people who just like want to learn more about techniques and different ways of doing neuroscience research so first on a high level do you want to tell us about what electrophysiology is and the specific version yeah. of ephas that you did yeah of course so electrophysiology is kind of like a broad term and it generally involves you recording the electrical potentials of neurons and this can be a group of neurons you can literally like a classic experiment is if you stick a, an electrode that can record electrical potentials from neurons into the hippocampus and activate part of the hippocampus and you can measure like this chain reaction of electrical potentials that happen through the hippocampus that's one type where you just did stick like an electrode broadly within the tissue my technique, however, is called whole cell patch clamp recording, where I record from a single neuron. And so the way that you do this is you take a glass electrode, you pull it so it's really, really small. And then the inside of that, there is a recording electrode and you stick that to a single neuron. So your electrodes on the single neuron membrane, you apply negative pressure, which will rupture the cell membrane inside the glass pipette that's touching the neuron. So your glass pipette is connected with the inside of the neuron then. And then you can actually measure that neuron firing action potentials and you can actually change the membrane potential that that neuron is actually, like raise it up to bring it down. And this allows you to measure different ion channels, different currents. You can apply different um, drugs and blockers onto them to assess the uh, active currents at different potentials, different scenarios. My husband and I talk all the time about this concept that like we as humans are looking for magic in the world, but like sometimes we forget that like the shit we do right now is actually magical. Like you, <laughs> what you just described, like people, like you can take cells and you can like, I, I just imagine like what the size of a cell, a cell in a rodent for that matter, because I know you did rodent research <laughs> and like you're able to like get into the cell and then change the cell. Like that is freaking magical. And also like as someone, I have not done EFIS, but I watched EFIS by one of the postdocs in my last lab, like extensively because I was fascinated. And I wanted to learn more of if this is something I should do. And he seems to think, I should. I don't know if I will, but I, he think oh, anyway, because like I did a really long experiment that required just a lot of like needing to deal with all these factors. Anyway, like watching that process like firsthand, I'm it's 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 magical. Like I can't think of a it's a stupid word, but I can't think of a better word. And that's like just so many hats off to you for even being able to do so. And so for people who don't know that don't want to hear me rambling about it, like what. I mean, I mean, I guess I'm getting to this is a really long process in terms of how long it takes to learn and be able to be proficient at it. It's also a really long process on a day to day basis when you're actually doing the experiment. Right. So like, yes. what kind of like, what did that look like for you? Like, what kind of schedule would you have to be able to do this just one t technique? <laughs> um, this technique is extremely exhausting. You need a lot of like resilience. That's for sure. Um, it took me about, I don't know, I started this technique in 2017, I think. And then I was like actually proficient by 2019. So it took me like a good two years. And um, I started patching like the dorsal raphe serotonergic neurons first. They're really fast. So they're like really easy to find and patch. 
So they're like a good cell to start because they're, they're really just big, which you need because you're like looking for a single neuron. You need something big. Um, the orexin neurons are tiny, so I had to start big, and then I like went smaller. Um, but like day to day, my schedules were kind of crappy, I have to say. So um, my experiments, as I talked about, they required me to use mice that I addicted for two weeks. So these were highly valuable mice, right? Like I didn't want to not get as many neurons as I could. I didn't want to waste anything. I wanted to like get as much as possible out of each mouse. So my schedule was basically, you know, I would come into lab at nine. I'd make brain slices. Well, I would inject the mice around 10. I would make brain slices around like 11, 30, 12. And then I'd start patching at 1 p.m. And then I was there in the lab from 1 p.m. until I got at least 10 cells. That was my and that could take me in the beginning until 10 p.m. But as I got more proficient over the years, it only took me until about 6 p.m. You know, at the with the last round of experiments, because I was more efficient at actually finding a cell and actually, you know, getting a good recording and continuing with that experiment for each cell. But they are very long days. <laughs> yeah. And that just really makes me think about for, for those who haven't gone through a PhD, which is most people, or like, or don't know as much about that space. Like, so much of that process is almost like pulling an arrow back, like back, back, back until like you know you're trained until you're you know really yeah. with it, which can take years. And then finally yes. you launch forward, and then in the last like relative to the whole PhD few years is when you're getting like all of your work, and then you're like, I'm ready to leave because I've been here for so freaking long. And yeah. you know, a lot of times the people who have trained you and invested time in you are like, well, you're just getting started. It's like, I've been getting started for years and I am ready to go. So my gosh, what a testament to resilience. And like in all of those really long days and the years it took for you to feel like you were proficient at the technique, like what kept you going? Because that could easily just muddle down a person or, you know, have someone leave or quit because it's just too much and it's not worth it like what made it worth it and what kept you going I guess so obviously like it wasn't like you know flowers and daisies the whole time (laughs) like I was pretty burnt out like really really tired like on the like I would patch for four days a week because these experiments they were two like two weeks and then I'd have all these animals to do so I'd do like Tuesday Wednesday Thursday Friday by Friday, I was like dragging my feet through the door and literally on autopilot. So prayed for my uh, hands, just, you know, my muscle memory doing everything because I was absolutely brain dead on those days. But what really kept me going is I was good at learning that I needed breaks. So I don't I don't care. Like if you think you're really cool for working on the weekends, I'm sorry. Like I just just don't like give me like you. I, I had to go and do injections, but I'll go home. Like, you need time to rest. And, like, I learned this basically because when was I able to draw? I was able to draw when I was relaxed. I was able to draw and be creative when I had time to just, like, not force my brain into structured thought and just relax and enjoy myself and have downtime. And it works the same with science. Like, if you want to be able to get back in there, you need to give yourself downtime. So take the breaks. I took my breaks. I forced myself to do things like go on hikes, um, draw something, even though it was kind of painful because I was like, wow, I'm not creative, but I need to like get something out of me. Um, And obviously a support system. So my now fiance, 
is was a really really good support system and kind of like was like we're going to dinner tonight and I was like okay <laughs> but you know he would just like drag me out um and like so having a really good support system and knowing when I was absolutely terribly burnt out and to like take a step back and make sure I don't work on the weekends unless I absolutely have to for some reason like there's a conference or something is really important to um keep going because it's a long time like I was that was seven years for me okay oh my gosh I'm like which question do I go with first okay I because I have a whole question about your fiance and you know your relationship and how that played into your whole trajectory but what you just touched on in terms of like everything that the really important wisdom of making sure you're taking care of yourself and yeah there's deadlines and sometimes we need to hustle but like making sure for the most part you're taking care of yourself how did you toggle especially toward the end of your PhD of like oh, I just need to like put my head down and get this shit done. I need to get done and get out of here and like stop being paid this little and like all of that versus also like, oh, every break I take, like I may need a break, but that means I'm going to be here longer. Like how did you toggle that tension and make decisions that way? Yeah, so it gets, I have, I'm sorry to say this, but the last year of your PhD will be the absolute hardest year. And I know like, I just want to give the full on heads up because like, I didn't really see it coming. I was like, oh, like I did all the experiments, like whatever. No, writing your dissertation will be the absolutely hardest thing you will do because the stress that you're under is disgusting. Um, And so I handled my stress pretty well up until about December of last year, December, 2022. And then from then until I submitted my dissertation on April 3rd, I was a hot mess. I was I was a hot mess. Um, basically, <laughs> I was something that I found that helped though is like so basically like the anxiety that you feel because of the pressure of getting um, like sections in of your dissertation, um, talking to your committee members, having meetings with them, having things prepared, etc. You're not sleeping well. You have this anxiety that like sits in the top of your stomach. Um, I started taking CBD gummies. They helped me a ton with that because like if I didn't have to feel things I knew it was there all right but I didn't have to actually physically feel it I could sleep better and then I could actually wake up the next day and start over again so like once I started doing like the CBD gummies at night I could fall asleep I woke up in the morning and I could just sit down and get to work again so you you have to find something that works for you maybe that will but it's definitely a stressful time and giant heads up for that Very clearly here, I'm just like tr- asking all the questions that I'm going to need because I know like what I'm signing up for and <laughs> starting like maybe a little too much. Like I'm already I mean, you can't know until you actually do it, but I'm already overprepared for like probably in a negative way of how shitty it's going to be. I'm not seeing like the positive parts except for I love research. But no, that's that's so important. And thank you for being open and honest and not just here on this podcast, but in everything you create, like normalizing the human experience and the realities of just stress. And even in the best of circumstances where everything is beautiful and life is great, like being under that much pressure and in such an intensive situation, like it is normal and a very like it's the expected reaction to have in that situation. And we can talk all day about like why that's like the the, the fact that maybe that situation shouldn't be the situation, but given that that is the case right now, like you had a normal human experience, you struggled, you were open about it and you, you got through, but 
all of that was so valid. And thank you for sharing the, the, some of the ways that you coped and also just at the end of the day, like normalizing it. And that's a lot of what you do with your work. And so, gosh, I have to get into all of your advocacy and your science communication. But before that, I wanted to talk about your <laughs> amidst all of this and through your whole PhD and otherwise, like, first of all, you're engaged and you have an amazing fiance. <laughs> and to my understanding, like he's not in the field you're in. So he really like amongst everything as part of your relationship, he's also just a very like grounding, normalizing, like bringing you back to like the reality of the full scope of life human. Like when in your life did y'all like as much as you're comfortable sharing, when did y'all meet and like what did your relationship look like throughout your education and, and how did you navigate all of that? Yeah, so we met, like, so you know, like, the qualifying exam that everyone has to take during their PhD? So he, we met, like, around that time, a little bit before I took my qualifying exam. And um, so, and I, he reminded me of this, he reminded me of this while I was doing my dissertation, because I was, like, dying. He was, like, remember, when we first met, you told me that it was going to be a wild ride and you better jump out now because I'm going to be a hot mess in a few years. <laughs> and, you know, I was up front with him about that and he stuck around and, you know, he dealt with my hot mess and we're still good. <laughs> Clearly, we, um, getting married. <laughs> yeah, so I was up front about it. He stuck around for the ride. He definitely does not do anything related to what I do, which I like because I don't want to take it home with me. Um, he is in like accounting. He does like payables, like payroll, like stuff like that. Nothing to do with science, but he humors my science. Like I text him this morning and I was like, my results are really good. And he's like, oh yeah, there are a lot of the cells that like you were like expecting to see. And like, so he pays attention, you know, like I explain things to him. It might be like kind of gibberish, but he picks up on stuff and still pays attention to it enough to be happy when I'm happy, which is awesome. Oh, I love that so much. And realizing that y'all met in the thick of the first wave of the PhD, like horribleness is for lack of a better term is so amazing and such a testament to your relationship and to the kind of person that he seems to be. And I, I love that for you. And I, I'm sure, I mean, you, it sounded smooth sailing in the way you shared it, but I'm sure it's not like so simple. Like there's difficulties and balance and still like a lack of, you know, the full understanding of what you're going through. And just like sometimes that choice between like your life and your relationship and like all the work that's waiting for you. And so can you speak to what your version of balance is in your mind? Like if that even exists for you, how do you define it? How do you strive for it? Is it consistent? Is it seasons? Like what's your take on that? So it's definitely, I am consistent with it, but there are seasons like when there are deadlines and crazy things happening where you have to kind of like triage stuff and focus on work. But I was pretty good with, you know, maintaining like the work-life balance. And he is probably a primary reason for that because what I wanted to hang out with him, right? Uh, obviously, like I want to hang out. I want to play video games. I want to go watch a movie. I want to go eat dinner. I want to go like hiking. So like, there was enough of like, a, I want to do those things too, that the work-life balance happened. And for a majority of the time on weekends, like I would hang out. And then during the week, I could turn my work brain on and then do that. Uh, obviously, some Sundays, if I had to present on a Monday, I would be working all Sunday. But he was chill. He just played video games. 
it's great. You know, like he would just be in the room with me, which is like, I really appreciate um, co-working is something that I strive with. And he really, really helped me with that because he would just like sit in the room and read, play video games, watch a show. And I was just able to be on my laptop working still. And that really helped me throughout the whole time. Ugh, I love that. And that's also a testament to the way you show up in relationship and the way he does. And that brings me a lot of hope too, because I'm definitely afraid of what that's going to look like with my husband and my dog. And like, I think what I'm realizing is you're saying that you just wanting it will help inform the way you navigate your choices. And the fact that I want it and I so deeply value it, like, Maybe I don't have to worry as much. I just need to like follow my instincts and do what I need to do and check myself sometimes. So thank you so much for sharing that. And did you get to see your family much throughout your PhD? Like, I think you live close, but not super close to them right now. Like, what was that like as well? Yeah, so I'm only in an hour and a half away from my parents, which was which is a really good distance because it's like easily attainable, obviously. Um but I have to say the PhD, you will lose out on some things, right? Because you have competing deadlines, you have competing things that are going to, if you don't do them, it's going to push you back or you'll get penalized if you don't, you know, present well or something like that at school. So I did miss out on some things, but overall, you know, I was present at most family gatherings. I was present for most holidays. Um, the only thing is when you're doing your PhD, you're present at the gatherings, but your brain isn't necessarily present all the time. And it's because you're constantly thinking about the things that you need to do when you leave the family gathering or you go back home or you start work again. So um, it's a kind of different loss. Like you, you may be able to attend all the gatherings still, but your brain will definitely be not as, you know, in the moment with everybody because of your degree. Is there anything that you found like helped you become more present or or maybe become more okay with the endless to-do list or was that just kind of a foregone conclusion? Um, I definitely struggled with this for most of the time, I have to say, but I guess one thing that I think about is like um, you wake up in the middle of the night and you can't go back to sleep because you're constantly thinking about again, things you need to do or like, oh, what if the results aren't what they are when I analyze them tomorrow? Or like I have a meeting with my PI, etc. And you have to learn like techniques to shut your brain off. And so I would count things at night. <laughs> so I, I would just and, it, and I realized it had to be words that had like more than one syllable, like cat. I can't count cats. That's like too easy. My brain's like too stimulated for cats. All right. So I had to do like apple. Or like, you know, like banana, like that's three, you know, you had to do like multiple syllables so I would things at night and see how high I could go. And I, I would able to be able to fixate on that and get myself back to sleep. And it's kind of the same t thing when you're awake, you have to zen yourself out in a way. Um, and I started using a, a journal and I would write down things that I had to do. And if I wrote them down, I was like, okay, there's some place that I, that I know that are, you know, written down things I need to do. I don't need to constantly think about them because the paper's holding them for me. So I started doing that and that helped me move away from being so hyper fixated while I was like hanging out with people. I could actually be in the moment and then the paper would hold my thoughts for me for later. 
instinct. Everything you just shared is such an example of your creativity. Like the fact that you thought about syllables, I was like, what? I never thought about that until now. Dude, my brain is really messed up. <laughs> um, not messed up, just really creative and active and sometimes to your detriment, but not messed up. It's very active. <laughs> Clearly, and maybe research is the best place for you to be for that reason, because my gosh. Yeah. But there's a word you used that reminded me of something that you talk about a lot. You talked, you were talking about competition in a different context, but something that you've really normalized in your work. And oh my gosh, we have to get into your science communication still. But like before we get to that, um, you t you've talked a lot about this idea of like not comparing ourselves to the people in our cohort, the people around us, and science looks so different. And I think as someone in this transitionary period, like there is this element of when you're in your undergrad or when you're, you know, as a postback and you're applying for programs and even master students, whatever, there's a sense of like competition with everybody. Like they, like there's a finite number of spots and like you have to compete with them to get to this place. And I hate that idea, but nonetheless, like there is some level of competition and then you get to a PhD and there's still this like rigorous amount of competition instilled in us. And yet we're all kind of on our own paths, doing our own thing, and we're not necessarily taking away from each other. So how did you navigate, to, because you talk about it, like how did you navigate like this comparison, comparisonitis to everybody else and kind of getting over that and just being in your own lane and doing your own thing? Yeah, so what really helps with that, because obviously that's just like an innately present thing. Like People are going to compare themselves other people they're gonna you know look at what you're doing and be like and judge mental and all that that's just like an overlying thing that's always there so how do you ignore that um what i did was like okay what techniques do i do all right i do electrophysiology do the other people do electrophysiology yes some do yeah no some don't do electrophysiology okay how much time does it take me to do one experiment versus how much time it takes someone else to do an experiment okay, it takes me a long, long time to do one experiment versus some experiments are very, very quick. Um, everything has its own timeline, even the experiments you do. So what your timeline is shouldn't be compared to other people because you're doing different things than everybody else. You're doing PCR, you're doing immunocytochemistry, you're doing ELISA's, you're doing electrophysiology. All of those things take different amounts of time, different amounts of time to analyze and even process what the results are. So I think if you can just like break it down into pieces of like physical things you're actually doing and how long it takes you to do, that's what you should focus on because the same task might take different amounts of time for people, but it's what your timeline is that matters. And you're speaking to something that you really do an amazing job of normalizing for with people, which is like rather than taking some sort of fact about yourself and creating shame like oh this should be different for me it's like oh like why waste that time in shame when you could just be like this is who I am and how I do things can I just work with this and then like plan things and just you've talked in, in the past about like making to-do lists and you know breaking things down into small steps and that so much of that is like leaning into on a meta way like acceptance of yourself and your situation and the things you're doing rather than like how do I make this different how do I do this a different way and be someone else I'm not or you know try to fit a standard that doesn't fit me like you're just you seem to be very attuned to just acceptance and sharing that with other people versus shaming so thank you for that and I just really see how that applies to not just your science but the way you speak to the world which finally leads me to oh my gosh <laughs> 
this whole other part of, I mean, the reason that we've met and the reason that a lot of people know you beyond, you know, your papers and your research itself, you started I mean, the way I see it, you, you started a science communication, not just science communication, but also just advocacy and awareness and, you know, a platform to normalize the human experience of being someone who's a researcher and the full spectrum of your humanness in that process. So how the hell did that start? And when did it start? And like ever, all the things you want to share, because it's amazing. Yeah, it was quite a surprise to me. I didn't really expect to actually gain any followers, if I'm going to be quite honest. Um, basically, I while I was doing my PhD, I was a biochemistry TA. I was the TA for the course for five years. And um, at the end of those five years, because my PhD was seven, right? So I handed off the TA position to a new PhD student, which I'm friends with, that came into the program that liked biochemistry. So I was like, here you go. I started lecturing in the course instead, but I missed drawing. Because like during my tutoring sessions, I was known for this at school. Um, I would draw the concepts out on the board. So like you'd come in for the TCA cycle and I would draw the bits of that or amino acid synthesis or degradation. I'd, you know, draw all the bits, any of the stuff. And um, I missed that. And I was like, I really liked that. I like explaining things in a way that makes people have that like light bulb moment. And I wanted to continue with that. So I really started the platform figuring that I would, you know, draw concepts and put posts up explaining any concept that kind of, came into my brain that I wanted to explain that week, that day, that month, because I'm kind of spontaneous. You can't really hold me down too well. I don't stay on the track very easily. <laughs> I'm like, ooh, I want to post about this today. I uh, Very spontaneous. But that's really how my platform started. I just wanted an outlet for drawing science. Truly bringing, in, in that way at least, like two major parts of yourself together. And I think you tell me if you agree with this assessment of your platform, but of course, a key part of it is the science communication, is the art, is the way that you distill down concepts into really accessible ways, which by the way, like I found you when I was at the beginning of my master's program in neuroscience, like what the fuck is even happening? Because like I had pivoted from psychology, had only taken one neuroscience class and like the amount that your work helped me understand what I was learning in class, like it just helped me feel more comfortable with it and took away a lot of that fear and that freezing of like, oh, I'm too stupid. I can't do this. Like because it was such like a palatable, accessible way of you know, taking it in from a human who's just so good at communicating. That was beautiful and great. But my assessment of your platform beyond that is you also share so much of yourself as a person. You share about your experiences, your humanness, the parts of your life that are not directly related to research, but nonetheless, they come together in terms of like managing different parts of your life, talking, of course, about your human experience, like so much of why I, I had questions to ask you about your mental health and your balance and life is because you talk about it and you normalize it. So what was it like to start sharing more of yourself on the platform and what was kind of, was it a natural progression? Did you make a concerted effort to do so? And I asked this because I think we're in a shift in a slow but sure shift in research in academia where there's some people who are starting to come out of the closet of being a real human being and not just being a lab rat all the time. <laughs> So, so how, so how, yeah. what, you know, inspired you to kind of be at the helm of sharing yourself in that way? I, so it wasn't really a conscious decision at first, I guess, to start sharing more intimate details about like what I'm doing at the moment or like what I'm eating for lunch or like, you know, I'm working out in the morning or my cats or, you know, 
it was definitely just going to be a science platform in the beginning, but I was just like, I am the science, like, you know, I'm the science platform, like, I'm drawing it, like, it's, like, why, like, how can I explain to people why I decided to post about this random thing today? Oh, it's because I'm weird, and I just, like, spontaneous stuff, and I just didn't want to separate myself from my creativity anymore. It kind of felt like that. I'm just, like, I am the creativity. Here you go. Whatever you get is what you get, because, like, that is just me, so, like, it just started becoming a thing. It started merging together at once. And it was kind of weird because, like, obviously all my friends watch it. All of my, like, people at school, they know it. Like, I have a platform and stuff like that. So that was weird in the beginning because I was like, this is a little awkward. But I just ignored it because do I care what people think of me at this point? Not particularly because uh, I am what I am. <laughs> That's developed over time. So it uh, wasn't planned, but it is what it is now. I like it. I you're not the only one who likes it so clearly and I think to your point of how quickly it grew and kind of where you are now and all the ways that you're all the places you're going like it clearly resonates with people and I guess I want to highlight that you are the magic of the platform yeah the education's great the science is awesome but like what keeps someone there versus like looking at any other figure it's you it's the person behind all of the work and so I just I love that for you and I'm so grateful that you are someone just forging a path forward for people like me to feel more comfortable to be my full human self so thank you so much for that and you kind of touched on this but I'm just so curious because it's so uncomfortable for me too like in being fully in academia being around you know all these professionals all these people were supposed to put on pedestals and like you know all of your peers and stuff like do you like does this work come forth in front of them does anyone have strange opinions about it like even though you don't care like or is it received generally well like because I know sometimes science communication from the people that are really you know old like they find it, you know, they, they, they have like opinion, like, I don't know, I guess, I guess what I'm getting at is like, there's sometimes this almost elitist, and I'm saying it, not you, there's this elitist kind of um, way that like, no, research needs to stay amongst researchers, like people can't understand it unless they're experts or they're in this field or they're in school, like it has to, you know, you, there's no way to distill down a concept while, while keeping its accuracy and you clearly do that, like, and show them that that's wrong. So like, how is that met by people like in the mo most traditional sense of the field for you? Um, so I mean, the, it's not really negative, but like, like you said, like the older generations who have been here don't really understand it because it's like a social media platform. You know what I mean? They're like, they don't understand like why you would even have like something to talk about. But, um, my PI has kind of embraced it, which is kind of cool. Um, he, <laughs> he, um, tells people that I have a platform now. He tells people to go look at it like we have a new student coming in october and he told her to go look at my platform to see like about the techniques that we do because i have electrophysiology stuff on it he showed um, my electrophysiology video to the orientation class from last summer so um he has pretty embraced it which is kind of cool um and it's it's generally like people like what I do. We don't I don't really talk about it that much at school. I have to say, it's not really brought up that much. Um, sometimes I'll run into people and they'll be like, "Oh, I saw this on your story" or something like that. Or I'll have people from school comment, like my stories and ask me like questions and stuff. Generally, isn't really talked about much at school. I kind of just do my thing, and I think everyone just accepts it the way it is. And 
I don't really know how much of the like older faculty actually know about it because like I said I don't even know if they have social media but it's generally widely accepted and not much negativity. I love that and I it's so I mean I met your PI at SFN so I have the image of him in my head and the him talking about your science communication just brings me so much joy and giving examples <laughs> of your videos and the pride in that and also just imagining people coming up to you so like oh I really like the way you crack your eggs in the morning. <laughs> that's a a thing no really people are like yes the egg cracking i've never been able to replicate because i am not art i am i am not talented like you are either hand left hand right hand we're good no oh my i can't even do it with my dominant hand okay another example of how talented you are but no that brings me a lot of joy and just really i feel like empowers so many people who have come across you and your work to feel like they can express themselves in their own way like me talking for hours and hours on a podcast obviously it's not drawing but it's my version of expressing and bringing parts together and i really really love that and appreciate that and in line with kind of where you like where you we talked about where you've been and all of the parts of your academic journey so far and parts of your life that have fed into that so now for those who don't know you have defended you have graduated you are dr liz and you so can you tell us more about where you are right now and of course we can't ever predict the future but what kind of do you vision for your journey as a scientist, a science communicator, and human overall? So um, for like job things, we can talk about that first. So I'm done with my PhD. I have finished all of that. And I am currently working as a postdoc in the lab that I did my PhD in. I kind of just rolled like right into that. And the reason that I did that is because my ultimate goal right now as it is is to move into an industry position so i'm looking for scientist positions in industry in neuroscience um hopefully a neurodegenerative disease position but i'm hoping hoping for at least like a stepping stone i can get in and then jump into a more desirable position maybe but that's the plan for that for now um the whole like decision for academia and industry in my brain is kind of a war because I'm extremely creative and I like the flexibility that academia gives you to be creative, but um, I want to buy a house. (laughs) I want to live comfortably and not have to worry about paycheck to paycheck. And unfortunately, academia is not going to give that to you really anymore. And there's not that many positions open. You have to scrabble to be an associate or assistant professor because there's not a lot of room. Um, and so I am going to take the industry route for that reason, but I'm hoping I can find a company that will allow me to still be creative with research. I mean, you just spoke to so many things that people outside of academia might not know about in terms of just this really big discrepancy and struggle about like humane living I mean, work conditions for starters, living conditions, salaries that are, you know, livable, not just livable wages. I mean, we, I guess it's simple to say, like, we should have a livable wage, right? But honestly, beyond that, we should have a comfortable wage because of the amount of training and work that goes into what we do. Also, the importance of the work that we do and what that translates to for people that, you know, end up being able to bring in far more money for themselves. And again, I'm saying this, these are my views, but like, it's just 
it's so heartbreaking that like that's even a decision Mm -hmm. that you have to make of like do I get to be the full scientist like in the creative like with the creative control I have or do I get to like live a normal (laughs) life and have amounts of money to be safe and pay my bills like my gosh yeah it drives me absolutely crazy like I because like obviously at the end of my well during the whole PhD but towards the end you get really tired of living off of zero dollars basically um and like yeah living in New York or basically anywhere in the country right now a stipend of 30k which is 26k after taxes is literally zero dollars and probably negative dollars at the end of your day so that's disgusting because um, a PhD student does more work than, for example, someone that's a research assistant in the lab and they get paid more, you know, while you're a PhD student. So that pisses me off. Um, And so, okay, I have my PhD. I'm going to be full transparent. So I have my PhD. I made like 33K after the raise, after inflation, you know, last year, years ago, I forget. And now I'm lucky enough, I'm saying this ironically, to make 60K. And like, I'm just like, okay, so, but what, like, why, why does someone who has their PhD in academia make 60K? And that's a good salary because some people make 50 and that's pretty more normal. You know what I mean? And, but as soon as you go into industry, you make double that without even like a hesitation. So I'm like, so like, why, why is there this discrepancy? You want people to discover new diseases, new how to treatments, how do things work, different mechanisms, but you're not going to pay them to do so, and you're not going to allow people to live with all the inflation going on. Kind of confusing. It's so confusing, and like I just earned my master's. I'm starting a PhD, well knowing all this, and it's such a battle in my head. But I say this because as a ma- like someone who was going to graduate with their master's, I was offered a few positions by industry companies that were paying like multiple six figures as a mass as someone with a master's degree which I yeah I worked hard for it great but like compared to a freaking PhD the thing I'm about to probably go do like it it makes me (laughs) sick it makes me sick and I know we're talking about money right now and it sounds like superficial but it's actually not because it's literally how we live and it speaks to a bigger point of like you know and someone might have the argument that like oh money isn't finite like you know the answer isn't like if the answer is just we need more money like that's such a you know people think that's like a fantasy but the reality of like academia and research and funding is that there's actually like a quite a a large amount of money that's available and to your point there's other positions that are not somewhat student positions that get paid sometimes double of what we paid like I I started going down the rabbit hole looking down research assistant positions technician positions even you know master's level research scientists and Not to mention just some of the administrative positions that exist. Like my husband was looking at like basically people who fix computers like in labs and they make three times the amount of a PhD student. It's freaking wild. Anyway, I mean, my as my own personal conclusion has come to, I think they hugely leverage the fact that PhD positions, especially in neuroscience, are so competitive that people are like, oh, I'm so grateful I was even accepted that therefore I will happily take that 30K and just live off of nothing because, oh my gosh, like at least I had the privilege of even getting accepted into this. Like there's such a competition for the positions. And so they hugely leverage that to their benefit. And it's just, it's really, really sad. And as someone who literally had the opportunity to to go have a decent li- like a pretty well decent living with my masters or 
go into a PhD for the sole purpose of I want to engage my creativity and academic interests and become, you know, closer to someone who like feels like a scientist and feels like they've made a contribution to the field. Like that's solely why I'm going into a PhD. So yeah, it's it's really heartbreaking, especially with you have health concerns and whatever. I'll stop my rant now. But like it's just like you don't get to talk about this so publicly so often. So thank it's you for all valid. It's all valid. And with that, like how do you feel like you're because you're because you're currently in a postdoc you just talked about the fact that you ironically just still make so little compared to what you deserve in in my words at least what is the is the function of the postdoc to be able to get you to an industry position that's like a good starting point and kind of have some time to figure out where you fit in industry yeah so the positions that I'm applying for a lot of them require you know X numbers of experience after your PhD. And a lot of the people that are applying that I'm going against already have postdocs done. So I need to at least obtain a little bit of experience and hopefully get into an industry position as soon as possible because they count industry experience obviously much higher than academic experience. So the sooner I can get in, the sooner I can, you know, jump around to a position that I would really, really enjoy being at. But it's quite unfortunate. And how does all of your work in science communication and creativity and all that you create, like, how does that fit into kind of your vision for moving forward professionally and academically? Yeah. So obviously in academia um, and in the lab that I'm in, because I have like permission, et cetera, I can share more of like, you know, a brain or like the different techniques that I'm doing or like videos of myself, myself performing experiments, et cetera. Um, I know I do not believe that would be possible in an industry setting, which is fine, but um, I have secret plans. But <laughs> so basically, like, um, I would probably transition into more of my creative side, drawing concepts, explaining new papers that come out, you know, having discussions about new research, new ideas, etc. But I also really want to get my own microscope, like a personal microscope for at home and kind of jump back into my like environmental creative side for like outdoor stuff and like you know maybe do some cool stuff with like different leaves or different flowers and like high resolution and do like kind of some cool stuff with that so that's kind of like a pipe dream hopefully one day that'll be a thing well you're about to get married and registries are a thing and you know a lot of people (laughs) put like plates and fancy cups and like $300 like mats and stuff on there and that's valid and cool if like that's your thing but also what if you put a microscope on there and people had like a crowdfunding (laughs) situation I don't actually know how much they cost but I know there's someone there who would get it for you I don't know who but I I I think (laughs) that's closer than you think is all I will say but (laughs) but no that sounds amazing I like your thinking (laughs) I like it and I just really I'm really happy personally to hear that like the creativity and the education of concepts isn't going away because I think that just at the end of the day like is where you started and just has that I mean that's not dependent on anyone but you and your brain and your brain cells making pictures of brain cells so I I really love that and do you feel like there's other parts of yourself that are waiting to be expressed like in different professional or personal ways or do you kind of feel like fulfilled in the way you share yourself right now um no I'm definitely you know my brain's like I get bored easy and I always have like random ideas 
there, like during my PhD, I was too tired really to try to explore like new things. Like honestly, the concept of sitting on my computer in my apartment is toxic still to me. So I don't do it if I can help it because I have like slight PTSD with that or not PTSD, but you know what I mean? Just like I have an aversion to it. Um, And so, but that's slowly going away. Um, And so when I'm able to actually get to the point where I can actively use my PC for things that I want to do instead of my PhD dissertation, um, I would like to work on more of kind of digital platforms and digital like books for example like I want to actually like put my work in a book I want to actually illustrate in a constructive package instead of like my sporadic brain so like I want to actually force myself to like I'm going to finish this one topic and put like this little digestible like book with all these pictures up for people to buy and stuff like that like I kind of want to do something like that so I'm going to take it upon myself to just badger you about it every so often because that is so needed and so amazing. And like, maybe just like go sit on the beach and draw. I don't know. Like, that just sounds like that's we need that as a neuroscience student and researcher. Like, I need that. So I love that so much. And I that actually reminds me of something else I wanted to ask you about in terms of you are so you really share your movement journey and I don't want to call it exercise necessarily because you might not resonate with it always being exercise, but you're just really active and it's not just in a, oh my gosh, like I love being active all the time way, but like you in a loving way, force yourself to be active for your health, for your well-being. And I know I'm someone and I know there are other people who really struggle with like overriding that resistance and, you know, it's so easy to fall into, oh my God, I'm so busy. I'm so tired. I just need that extra half hour of sleep or like, oh, that's the last thing I want to do. Like, what has that been like for you? Why do you prioritize movement and how do you navigate the resistance that comes with it? Yeah, so there's quite a resistance for that. Sometimes I think we all feel that we don't really want to put on the workout clothes necessarily. I don't want to put on my shoes. Putting on shoes doesn't happen sometimes, which is why I do indoor workouts because the shoes are not happening that day. Um, so I definitely have prioritized working out in the morning versus at night because when you are a biomedical PhD student, you're in the lab for unknown amounts of time. So you don't get home at random, like you get home at random hours. You don't know when you're going to be home. So working out at night, it's not going to happen. It's just really not unless you can actually like, okay, your experiments are short. You know, you're going to be done at a certain time of the day. Me, that never happened. So woke I had to do it in the morning for sure but um it definitely wasn't always something I wanted to do um, I started out short like I would just like go for like 10 minute walks and then I became 20 minute walks and then 30 minute walks and I would listen to podcasts I would listen to music I would listen to um, audible books I have audible I love audible audiobooks are fantastic or if you don't want to pay for it you can do Libby because if you have a library subscription um and or I would just talk on the phone, like anything that would distract me to forget that I was actually doing what I was doing, you know, and it became a habit after a while. because I was like, OK, like I feel better after I did that. And there was starting to be an association like obviously there's adrenaline happening when you're working out. And like that gave me more of a boost than coffee did sometimes. So I was like, I like that. I need that. I still have to do my day. Why don't I do my day with a little bit of adrenaline on top? <laughs> you know what I mean? To start my day out. And so um, when I don't want to 
go outside and go for a walk. I do indoor workouts. I do beach body. I have the beach body app. I turn it on. I do a program. I might be a random program every day because I can't decide sometimes. Sometimes I stick to programs. It is what it is because I don't want to put my shoes on. So I don't put my shoes on. I put my yoga mat out and I hang out with Moose and I do a indoor workout. <laughs> Moose is Dr. Liz's cat for anyone who doesn't know. So precious. <laughs> but I, the reason I ask you these questions, well, number one, it's selfish because like on a very practical level, like I'm utilizing all the ways that you share yourself and survive to like have a guide line framework for how the hell I'm going to survive this thing I'm about to start. But on a higher level, like all of the ways that you commit yourself to just taking care of yourself as a person, and there's no perfect way to do it, but the fact that you're so committed to taking care of yourself is such an example of what's possible to put ourselves first and to see ourselves as a full human being and just really nurture ourselves and our creativity, our health, our motivation. And you're just you're amazing. You're amazing. And you show people, especially in this intensive field where we're really encouraged not to think of anything but the work we're doing and to, you know, bring in funding and do experiments and bring in and and be productive, that productivity can not just encompass like the work we do, but the person we are and how we, I mean, ultimately, I guess it even makes us more productive, but irrespective of that, like you just, (laughs) you're, you're so incredible in the way that you are also just again so open about not being perfect and the ways that things come up and how you keep going forth and so I am just so grateful for all of your work and I have some questions that I want to ask you as our like they're, I call them rapid fire questions because that's what podcasts say but I am not a rapid person so <laughs> you're about to hear my version of rapid fire questions which are number one What are three surprising things that people would not know or readily guess about you? Experiences, traits, interests, anything that comes to mind. Um, Funny thing is, I'm an only child and no one guesses that, like, ever. It's always a surprise to everyone who I tell. I don't know why. Um, I am a giant nerd, which I'm explaining more on my platform now, which I, I love Pokemon. I don't even care. It's fantastic. I play Pokemon, the cards, the video game. I do all of it. I have plushies, all of it. Um, and then third thing, I, hmm, I don't know. I'll do something random. I'm allergic to poppy seeds, so I don't really know if I can actually have morphine or not because you make opioids from poppy plants. Oh, it's kind of funny. I I worked on morphine, but I don't even know if I can have it. (laughs) Did you ever have a reaction being near it or anything? No, I mean I had gloves on the whole time, true. obviously. That's so true. <laughs> I don't know, but if you if you if you like toast and everything bagel in the room, I get like all itchy and my throat feels weird and stuff. I thought like that, so yeah. That is so unfortunate. <laughs> everything bagels yeah. are amazing, but no, that's so interesting. I know. <laughs> my next question is, what are your top guiding values in life? Guiding values, um. Honestly, just be yourself and don't care what other people think about you. Um, Do what you want, but like be conscious of what you're doing. And third, I don't know. (laughs) I can't come up with a third one. It's the bad, if I'm going to be honest. You've got two really strong values. (laughs) I love that. What came first, the chicken or the egg? And there's no right answer, but I love to know how people answer this. Mm, definitely the chicken because 
Dr. Biologist. <laughs> um, because there was a chicken that spontaneously got pregnant and had an egg without another chicken being present, because that can happen sometimes. <laughs> I will take it. Or not it. chicken, rooster, rooster. You know what I mean. <laughs> That's the right answer. That's the right answer. What does rest look like to you? Rest? Um, basically being able to zone out and binge read a book. Binge read a book is very refreshing for me. Um, fantasy books. I read all fantasy books, obviously. Um, or a drawing or just, you know, being able to hang out with people that you enjoy being around. Hmm. I need to get back into reading. I just... I'm always like, oh, I have to read so much for school and for work. Like reading is like, it's just my aversion is to like having to read information. But like, there's so many different ways of reading. And you, you reminded me of Audible being a thing. So <laughs> I love podcasts. It it's just like a podcast version of book. But I love that. And I love how much you value rest and sharing that with other people too. What is one thing you wish you could tell your younger self? This could be at any age. Um, don't be afraid to ask all the crazy questions that are coming up in your head because I held them back a lot when I was younger. I was taken as a shy person, but got rid of that. <laughs> not, I'm not shy anymore. I just ask whatever I'm thinking. Hmm. And then this last question, I'm actually going to make it two questions because there's a more specific one and a more broad one. So what is one thing you wish everyone who is a PhD student or a student researcher knew or could hear? Um, when you're beginning, you need to choose your dissertation lab based on the PI. It doesn't matter what the research is. It's based on the PI, because as we talked about earlier, you are basically marrying this person, not by documentation, but basically marrying this person and, um, your relationship with them and how they guide themselves and they guide you will make all the difference in your PhD. And what would you look out for in a PI as someone who's about to go do exactly that. So red flags for PIs is someone who doesn't respect your personal boundaries in terms of your work schedule. If they, some PIs will expect you to be in regular hours from like nine to five. Some are like show up whenever you want. Some are the type that expect you to be around at all times and are like, oh, I must have missed you. You weren't in the lab kind of deal. And that makes you feel like crap. So you need to pick a PI that, you know, aligns with your schedule. Um, another red flag is how many publications they're putting out. Too many publications could be a red flag. So unless you want to burn yourself into the ground. Um, so looking how many they put out per year is something that you should judge on how you work. Because if you're fast paced, perfect. If you're not fast paced, maybe pick a middle ground, you know, publication type of cycle. Um, and last thing is, how long was the PhD of those that came before you? Because if it was short, long, that can tell you a lot about your experience and what you can expect. I especially love what you said about the publications, because I think we're taught to look for the more publications and the more high impact publications, the better the lab it is. And like you said, that like with your values of, you know, rest and balance, like that may not be the thing that you need. So thank you so much for, yeah. again, normalizing that and just being a voice to different ways of being while still being someone who loves science and does research. And then 
my final question is more of a broad question just for everyone in a more meta way. What is one thing you wish everyone knew or could hear about life? Um, I guess, so when we're talking about you being like an individual, like everyone, there's all this comparison that just brings me back to like thinking about how everyone compares themselves to everybody else. But the beauty of it is that you are you and no one else can be you. And you're not like a duplicate of someone. You're not your parents. You're not like a duplicate of another PhD student that's in the lab or the someone that came before you, you're not filling a position. You're someone and you're making your own place. Like no one's had your position before. No one's been you before. So it's all right if you're not going to provide the same things as someone else does. Like you're going to provide what you can. And that's what's fantastic because it's your perspective, your creativity, and whatever it makes individually you, that's what you're bringing to the table. Mm, what a way to cap off an episode of you exemplifying all that you just said. You are truly someone who leans into all of the beautiful ways that you show up in the world. And you, there is no one like you, Dr. Liz. Thank you for being exactly who you are and being such a uplifting, bright human being to not only people who do the kind of research you do, but to people in general who are coming into themselves and want to learn more. And just so grateful for your friendship. I'm so grateful for your wisdom. I can't wait to have you back to talk more about the papers that are coming out and research and all of the cool things you're about to do. And just thank you for your time and sharing yourself with everybody here. And thank you so much for having me. It was so good to see you and chat. And I cannot wait to see you at SFN this year if we both end up there at the same Absolutely. Oh, y'all, I am just so, so grateful to Dr. Barry for coming on the show. And as you obviously heard, if you are at this part, she is just so full of such wisdom in how to navigate life and boundaries and be passionate about our work and also pursue a path that's aligned with us in terms of our values and our health, our well-being, and also just modeling like reality and not a perfect way of doing things, but still just working endlessly to continue to fight for ourselves and advocate for ourselves and get to a place of more balance. And she is just so brilliant in, of course, her research, but also just all the amazing ways that she brings forth her values, her creativity, her way of viewing and showing up in the world and just like bringing that all together. And that's what we're all about here so clearly on this show. This show is about bring together and integrating all the different parts of ourselves and just being the human we are and being it all at once. And Liz is just the absolute epitome of that. And she is so kind. And I just loved getting to learn from her. I know that y'all just got so much advice and real talk and just so much love from this beautiful human being. So I hope that you just loved this episode. And if you did, and if you are enjoying the show, then please just take five seconds while you're here right now to just go wherever you're listening to this podcast and hit the subscribe button. 
And that way, you are the first to receive episodes as soon as they come out. And it really, really supports me in being able to continue to grow and create the show. Also, if you could just take five more seconds to leave a quick five-star rating and review, and that seriously helps me in the show because it really allows other people to see that this space is a space that is providing consistent support and value and is a safe space for people to explore themselves just like the entire ethos of this episode so if you could support me in all of those ways that would just mean the absolute world to me especially as someone who is creating the show all by myself right now every amount of support and every single one of you just is the reason i get to do this and thank you so much for supporting me also you could take just a few more seconds to send this episode to anybody who you think would be supported by it. Just either send it to them via text or repost it on your social media. I always have clips and ways to easily support the show and repost by sharing on your social media. Seriously, every single one of those shares counts and brings more people into this community so that we can co-create and grow together. So thank you again so much for spending your time with me here and listening to this episode with the amazing Dr. Liz, and I can't wait to see you again next week for another episode of Chat with Uma.